around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective, where we're going to be exploring the topic of vertical urbanisation as a means of unlocking regeneration, how that fits with sustainability, and look in detail at a project in Oslo that's been putting all of that and more into action. I'm Claire Smith, and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer and your host for today's episode. And join me for that conversation, we have Haptic Architects Director Thomas Stocker and Ramble Director Ollie Wildman. Thomas co-founded Haptic Architects in 2009 and as a Norwegian national based in London, Thomas shares his time between the London and Oslo offices of Haptic. He oversees Haptic's international work and also leads Haptic's R&D arm, Haptic Green. He believes strongly in collaboration and international collaboration is key to Thomas's approach, which is to make people happy through design. Ollie has over 15 years international experience in structural and multidisciplinary engineering of buildings. He is a design-led engineer and sits on Ramble's Global Design Board. Ollie currently heads up the Ramble's high-rise team in London. He's passionate about the impact engineering design and creative thinking plays towards a sustainable and ultimately regenerative future. So welcome to the Engineers Collective to you both. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. So before we come on to looking at the project that you've both been working on together in Oslo, which recently won the tall building category at NC's sister title Architectural Reviews Future Projects Awards, can we talk more generally about urban regeneration? What do you see as the key challenges we face today and why is high-rise or vertical urbanism the right approach? I think I'll let Oli have a first stab at that. Thanks, Thomas. I think um, it's a really interesting topic. I mean, you know, urbanisation is happening across the world. We can see that happening and that's not going to slow down. It's only going to increase. And um, constraints on cities in terms of their, you know, their sprawl is, is, is going to naturally force us to challenge ourselves and our city planners around, um, around how we respond to that problem by looking at vertical growth. And I think um, you know, we shouldn't be shy of that. We shouldn't be shy of that. If, as long as we look at that in... Um, you know, discrete pockets where it's actually less harmful to the to the the natural environment. It's um, you know the views of the city, and also you know put it in places where it makes sense. Then I think there's some interesting interesting um, answers there. In particular, I think the you know the the net, the the industry as a whole is very kind of focused on carbon, and I think that's right. And we've moved that kind of um, agenda forward substantially in the last um, you know decade but also we need to think about other things and i think you know ecology and kind of connection to nature is something that's fallen behind and maybe we need to think about this kind of urban acupuncture rather than this kind of sprawl and and also the the carbon associate and the cost frankly of sprawl is is enormous you know all those transportations and utility networks so i think a kind of measured approach to vertical urbanism, some sustainable density perhaps, is 
to me, certainly very interesting. Is that something you'd agree with, Thomas? Uh, yeah, I'm not a um, fundamentalist uh, high-rise designer at all. Uh, if you look at uh, the densest cities in Europe, like Barcelona, they have hardly any uh, tall buildings. But I totally agree with Oli in that um, tall buildings is the right answer in certain locations. If you look at our Oslo high-rise project, for example, uh, it's located in the largest public infrastructure node in Norway. And in those kind of locations, it's absolutely right to uh, promote density. And I think uh, Oli's point about carbon as well, you can't just look at uh, buildings uh, in isolation. You have to look at it as part of a wider system and look at what creates the best response for the city as a whole, both uh, ecologically, uh, carbon-wise and socially. So what do you think are the common mistakes that are made when planning urban high-rise, particularly to unlock regeneration? And what can the industry do to avoid those? I think a common mistake that people make when commissioning and designing high-rises is that they don't consider the uh, ground floor enough, the way it can contribute and give back to the city. The high-rise buildings are also very often monofunctional. They are only occupied for part of the day, and they're often inflexible for change over time. So I think these are kind of the key issues that we were trying to respond to when deciding the Oslo high-rise. What about you, Olive? You've come across some common problems when you've been looking at projects, because you're dealing with high-rise all the time, aren't you? Yeah, I think what's really interesting about high-rise buildings is actually they're, they're closer to neighbourhoods, you know, they're closer to small villages or towns, than um, simple, small buildings. And when we start thinking about kind of planning, but also how we start to think about cost, risk and carbon, I think a, a common mistake is is comparing, um, you know, a small domestic home against a, a large block of flats. And naturally, there will be, um, you know, more questions raised about the, the tall building. But... If you think about kind of master plan scale um, neighborhoods, we should be thinking about vertical master plans in a way, or vertical master plans in the same way as we do horizontal master plans and comparing them like for like, because of course, a high rise building is gonna always carry more in terms of, you know, talking about carbon, but carbon and cost than a small building. But when you start to look at those system boundaries that we talked about around kind of how people actually enjoy those spaces, the, the space that's left over perhaps for green habitats and ecology, then I think um, it starts to become slightly more compelling. And if we look at these things in the round rather than in the kind of, you know, under a microscope, I think it's, um, it's an all round more informed debate. Yes, yeah, it's all about the context and the building is within. So Thomas, you've started, you already mentioned the Oslo project. So can you tell me a bit more about that project? What do you think it's got right uh, compared to other projects? And how would you describe that building, I suppose, really, because most people listening won't know what the project is? Mm. Okay, so the project started out as a speculative project, you know, 
Oslo is revising its high-rise strategy at the moment. Uh, but the discussion is all about height, you know, how tall should the buildings be, uh, where should they be, and so on and so forth. Uh, but our argument is that the high-rises are about much more than that. It's about how we can create buildings that are flexible and adaptable for change, both during the design phase, but also in the future. There's a lot of talk about reuse of buildings, but equally important is ensuring that the buildings we design are flexible for reuse in the future as well. So that was one of the key themes we wanted to tackle. We were also very interested in how the buildings engage with the ground floors and how it gives something back to the city. So that was sort of the second theme we were looking at. We were then uh, working together with a couple of Norwegian developers to try and understand what are the key constraints in Oslo, what are the key concerns from a financial and economical perspective, and how can we integrate that uh, into our thinking as well. So we chose a site in central Oslo, located next to the central station. It's probably the most difficult site in Norway. It sits next to a huge road viaduct. It's a very socially um, challenging area. It's uh, basically where everyone comes to buy drugs in Oslo, uh, because obviously they also want to do that in the city center. And it's um, straddling the east and west uh, of Oslo, which is divided by a river. Our approach was to look at the uh, road viaduct as an opportunity rather than a problem. So we said, okay, let's retain this uh, viaduct structure for future use. It's no longer necessarily needed for car traffic. So let's instead reappropriate it for other uses. It could be a sort of highline style park that connects the, through the city center, or it could be for other leisure uses that gives back to the um, local community. So you get a sort of raised ground floor level uh, in the high-rise high building. Then you get a second ground floor level that faces onto the, the street network at ground level. And that also helps activate the spaces around the building. And then there's even a third ground floor, which sits at river level, at a lower level, which again connects straight into the public transport network. So it's a multi-level uh, approach to the ground floor. How can you activate not just the ground floor, but multiple level across uh, the site. And these um, lower floors give back to the uh, city. It's a amenity space available for the local inhabitants. And the second big move was to create a flexible structure. We call it a regenerative high rise, which means that we have a combination of hard decks and soft decks within the high rise. So every third floor has a solid deck. In between those decks, we can create different functions. You might fit three residential floors. You might have a couple of office floors. You might have a big floor-to-floor uh, -floor level for production facilities. Because what we've seen in the pandemic is that the needs uh, of the city changes rapidly sometimes. So you have to have a building that can adapt to the future, a future that we can't really predict. So this combination of hard floors and soft floors allows us to relatively simply change out the program over time, giving the building uh, longer long longevity. 
In addition to that, we've created a public park uh, for the uh, local inhabitants on the top of the building. In Oslo, it's surrounded by a beautiful uh, forest accessible by tube, but underused by certain groups of the community, especially the inner city community. So this creates an opportunity to come up into the height, appreciate the beautiful views over Oslo, over the fjords, while still being in the city center. So that's the sort of um, short version of uh, what the high rise is all about. So Oli, can you tell us about the structural design that helps to create that as a reality and how challenging that was? Yeah, definitely. So I think what's really interesting about this building is um, that it's it's not necessarily trying to make a building. I think that's what's so interesting about it is actually cities and, and Oslo, um, I don't know if the, the listeners know Oslo that well, but it's an incredibly quickly growing city. And so the need is actually for space, not necessarily buildings. And so, you know, the idea of the building that Thomas was describing is that all these different typologies would fit within these hard floors. And so you might have a village of domestic housing, or you might have a, um, you know, a school or an office building or, or even kind of a short term, you know, pandemic response, like a, you know, vaccine center could be there temporarily. So all of these different uses come with different needs. And this is a challenge because we're trying to balance a long-term, and we're talking kind of a hundred years here, a long-term payback on this building in terms of the structural kind of regeneration as it goes through different life cycles of people, you know, building houses, taking them down, putting up a school within these hard floors. So the loads change over time. And so what we're trying to do is balance those kind of long-term needs against the short-term kind of view on, on, on the carbon and the cost. So we have actually some quite large spans um, and we have some quite hard, you know, large floor to floor heights to make sure people can build different spaces within them. And that means that we do have some quite high stresses on some of the structure. With a view to carbon, a lot of the structure is, is, is timber. So we have timber floors, but we do have some steel where it counts. And I think it's very important to always put material in places that you know suits the application so we have steel beams timber floors we have a concrete core a proper concrete core that's safe you know it's going to be um, able to provide um, safe uh, evacuation from the building as well and we also have um, composite columns which are steel and, and timber as well which help us to take these quite large loads and big spans and um, respond to them in, in a kind of sensible way we're not into kind of gratuitous kind of use of timber without reason. I think it has to be materials playing to their own strengths. So some, some quite large challenges around how to find that balance between the short-term cost and carbon and, and, and everything else along the kind of long-term protection of regeneration to make sure that this building could be given a new life again and again and again for the people of Oslo. So we already know that it's an award-winning design, but what stage is the work currently at on site? Uh, I think um, the current uh, stage is um, non-existent in one sense. You know, the uh, project has been designed partially to provoke a response. And um, it's um, 
not necessarily something that will be built on that particular site anytime soon. I think the sort of uh, response to the building though has been incredibly positive and it started a lot of interesting conversations elsewhere. Uh, we're currently looking at another live site in Oslo where we're trying to adopt some of the same principles in an actual building project. And we've also had um, some interest from other places abroad where there's perhaps a, a higher appetite for slightly more extravagant uh, buildings. So it might get realized somewhere. Having said that, you know, we are actively promoting this um, project. We think it's absolutely the right site for the building. And it's uh, a site owned by the municipality of Oslo. So if you're going to try something a bit different, a bit experimental, that's absolutely the kind of place you should be doing it. So how important is it for clients to take on this challenge and actually look for a different solution, do you think? I think the... Um, the sort of principles of the building that you have to create buildings that are adaptable for change is becoming more and more important to our clients. You know, we've had some scandalous examples in Oslo of brand new buildings, 10, 15 years old, being knocked down because they're not no longer fit for purpose. And, you know, we just can't go about things like that anymore. So this is obviously an extreme example, trying to showcase the full flexibility that a building can offer. Uh, but I think everyone is starting to understand, you know, maybe you have to be a bit more generous with the floor to floor heights. Maybe you have to construct things in a way that can be more easily adapted or dismantled in the future. Uh, so I think this is sort of definitely something that's high on outlines mind anyway. I think, I think what's really interesting is, as Thomas said, you know, this is clearly a, a kind of research project rather than a, a, um, a real building that's being built today because it's supposed to start conversations. And in many ways, I think the paradigm in which we, we design and build buildings today couldn't support a building like this because it's obviously going to be more expensive on day one. We believe that over the life of the building, it would pay back in many, you know, in many different ways of, you know, however you count it in terms of cost and carbon or, and so on. But, um, it's supposed to stimulate debate. And I think going back to what we were saying about kind of master planning, governments, you know, this site is owned by the, you know, the local, the local government and is so much precedent for governments building large master plans and facilitating growth and um, future buildings by putting in roads and utilities for a building that's, you know, agnostic about what follows. Could that be, you know, done by, you know, a local government or municipality or, or even a developer with a completely different paradigm about how we actually generate value in our buildings. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of some of the big challenges I think we're hoping to stimulate the discussion on. So how different is this design from what each of you have done previously on other projects? It's different because it doesn't really have an end use in mind. Usually when we design a building, we know it's going to be an office or a school or a domestic housing project, but we're trying to get away from that and just create space that can be, that can follow on with whatever use may be. That means that we do have to increase the structural provision, both in terms of strength to make sure we have all eventualities covered in terms of loadings. So we also have to consider 
things like the floor to floor heights. And so that does mean the columns are very long. Um, and that does make them inefficient in some ways, but we're trying to balance this kind of long-term versus short-term kind of structural, structural thinking, which is quite, quite different. I think also, although the sort of, uh, architectural articulation of the building is perhaps a bit different from what we're doing in other projects, I think some of the key themes, are things we're doing in lots of other projects. For example, you know, if you're designing an airport, Building in the flexibility and the ability to change, adapt and expand over time is absolutely fundamental to whether the airport is successful. Um, we're also seeing, you know, like in cultural projects or school project, uh, there's a drive to create much more flexibility in use. So there shouldn't be these sort of isolated uh, units that operate just for a certain function at a certain time of the day. The school, for example, becomes a community hub, a community center where all the facilities can be shared with other people where at different times of the day uh, it's used by different occupants and where you have to build up the flexibility for these uses to change over time as the society and communities around develops. So I think there's a lot of universal themes that we're seeing in general. We also see much more of a drive for longevity in buildings. We are working on the new government headquarters in Oslo uh, nearby, where they have a completely different perspective on time and longevity. You know, the building is designed to last hundreds of years. And I think we all have to start thinking that way. You know, how can we create buildings that are simple, timeless, that are detailed in a way that can actually last, that can be demounted if it needs to in the future, or at least adapted to different uses. So I think our jobs as architects and engineers have become a lot more difficult in a way, uh, but that's also part of the fun of it, you know, the challenge. I suppose that brings me back to one of the questions around the, the engineering challenges of the design. What are the main technical issues for the structural design and wh what things do you need to do to actually address those to actually make the building a reality? Do you think you need to do more testing, more analysis, more materials, look at oh, more alternative materials? Well, the building is a timber building. And that does come with, you know, naturally questions over fire. And I'm sure you'll come back to quiz me on that later, but that will no doubt um, require some level of testing. But I think the rest of the technology is fairly normal technology applied in just a different way. You know, it's like the way the, the, way the industry thinks at the moment is almost like, you know, a, a theater starting a different show and every time they needed a different show, they break down the whole theatre and start again with a completely new one. And that just, that just cannot continue. As an industry, we have to get away from this idea of short-term thinking, much like when, you, you know, you or me or Thomas at home buying some appliance or product, you would never go for something that lasted a short period of time. You'd try and think long-term. And that's what we're trying to get to. So technically... We do have large spans, which is interesting because it kind of creates larger forces. And we do have tall floor to floor heights, which creates, um, more, you know, buckling in the columns, which means we have to deal with that and their composite columns, which makes it the interaction between the steel and the, the timber quite interesting. But overall, we're trying to take fairly tried and tested, um, techniques and apply them in a very different kind of and slightly unusual way. 
It certainly makes the job of being a structural engineer more interesting. <laughs> Indeed. So let's come back to the, the question around timber. What are the benefits of using timber for the project? I guess one of the key questions people have is, is timber a sustainable material for high-rise? And like you said, how do you address the concerns over fire risk? Well, I mean, the main reason for us using timber was, first of all, as I said, we're trying to use materials where they, you know, where they're best suited. And it does help us to reduce the weight of the building. You know, we're, we're looking to put this building on top of the, you know, the existing site with minimizing the, the groundworks as much as possible. That, that makes sense to make it as light as possible. So there's some advantages there. It's also about this kind of in dense cities. I think that connection to nature is, is often quite difficult to come by. And for me personally, I think being in timber buildings, you know, it does give you a, a small, perhaps, connection to that nature. You know, you never see anybody kind of stroking a, a steel or concrete column, but they do seem to be <laughs> with uh, with timber buildings. That you know, people seem to be quite, you know, they like to to touch it. That warmth and that feeling of nature does give them something you know, that connectivity to in a city where um, perhaps that's in short supply. So that's that's interesting. As for the fire, I think, you know, it is, it is a research project and we're trying to stimulate debate. I think one thing to say is, first of all, that the atmosphere around timber buildings in Scandinavia is very different to, to the UK. You know, clearly the tragedy at Grenfell has changed the discussion somewhat, um, understandably. I think the the way timber responds to fire hasn't, changed in that period of time but perhaps the the atmosphere around how you perhaps you know approach it technically or from an insurance perspective has changed we you know the, the two ways you can kind of approach fire and timber buildings is first of all to encapsulate it so that it's kept away from that fire we want to try and avoid that as much as we can but naturally you know that will be required in some places also, you know, the other way you can kind of mitigate that fire is it's, is through demonstrating that it will self-extinguish. Now, it is a combustible material. I think that's kind of important to note. Um, I think there's been, you know, lots of talk over the last decades about it doesn't burn at charge, but really it is a combustible material. And so you have to demonstrate that the building that you're building will self-extinguish. What that means is, is not having kind of whole swathes of timber um, that can increase the fire load. And what we're trying to do by bringing in the steel beams that could perhaps be painted with intumescent paint, it does break up the spans of the timber a little bit and stops the fire spreading to large areas. Now, this is clearly a very large topic we could do a whole podcast about another time, perhaps, but that's the kind of philosophy. You know, we, we, we are trying to be led by the science. Clearly, there'd be testing in, in place, but it would be um, all about limiting the spread to sh make sure that it can self-extinguish and encapsulating where we have to. Timber buildings tend to be more popular in Norway, perhaps, and you have more timber bridges as well. You've got more timber resources. So do you think this kind of project would take off more readily in the Nordic countries compared to, say, in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, timber is a wonderful material, and I think it's um, understandable, but the shame that you get the sort of 
huge backlash, a sort of blanket bans against materials, which sort of stops us developing the technology we need to build safely in timber. Uh, in Norway, they've already built, I think, two of the tallest timber structures that are completed. And there's been a proposal for a new tall timber tower in Oslo, which would be the tallest one in the world again, which um, has been applauded by the engineering community, the politicians and the inhabitants alike. And I think projects like that, projects like ourselves, can help drive forward the technology so that we don't sort of lose a major, very carbon beneficial construction material through this process. I think also from a carbon sequestering perspective, you know, with timber, it's important that they have a long lifespan for that actually to be effective. Uh, so this kind of project, which aims for a very long time span, is absolutely suited to being a timber building. I think also working with Ramble has been very useful in this process. You know, there's all kinds of things happening in all kinds of countries in terms of the use of timber as a construction material, in terms of the regulation and how they're developing. And what we really need is uh, more dialogue across the borders. And I think uh, bigger consultancies that have a global presence, such as Ramble, have an important role to play in that, in bringing together all that um, knowledge that's being developed and see how we can get a more considered and consistent approach to regulation in uh, countries such as Britain as well. We'll come on to what other projects can learn from it shortly, but just coming back to the, the project you've been planning in Oslo, can you talk me through about the mechanical, electrical and plumbing, the MEP for the building? How do you design that with the floor change possibility in mind? And what challenges does designing for that kind of flexibility bring? Imagine a, you know, a master plan again on a horizontal scale. We're kind of providing a similar level of service to the vertical building. Most of the um, centralized systems, which are the kind of the key backbone of the building, are you know, things like power and data, drainage and water. The same kind of things you'd find in your street outside your house in, you know, in London or, or Oslo indeed. But what we, um, what we do have is each floor is providing its own kind of decentralized heating, cooling and ventilation, much like any other building. So we're, we're taking a kind of horizontal kind of um, idea and putting it in a vertical plane. So the core of the building will provide power, data, water, drainage, but all of the, um, all of the heating, cooling and ventilation will be done through a kind of decentralized approach. So if you're building a domestic house in one of these spaces, um, you would use the same approach that you would use anywhere. Um, similarly, if you were using a, an office building, you would have decentralized you know, ventilation equipment. And one thing that's um, quite interesting, actually, from a MEP perspective is the, is the plant replacement. And how do you actually maintain these kind of um, different equipment over the life of the building? And in taking that kind of even further, how do you take a, a building in its entirety and build it in this space? And that's why if, you, if you've seen the, if your listeners have seen the renders, there's actually quite a large crane, a permanent crane on top of the core. And that's used to maintain the building, of course, but also to replace the big pieces of plant, but also the, the buildings that are built in this space over the life of the building. 
So taking a step back from the technical side of things, what were the drivers for change on this project? Was it a client who came to you or was it just you looked at the space and as a design team, you came up with a solution for it and you felt that there needed to be some kind of demonstration project to show all these different technologies and this different approach? How did you come up with it? I think, uh, you know, at Haptic, we had been talking to Bramble for some time to about doing a research project that looked into the flexibility of high-rise projects. And then as the um, uh, Oslo started revising its high-rise strategy, you know, it's uh, been a lot of debate about what the nature of the high-rise should be as part of that. We thought, okay, that's a, an ideal case study to, to test this. You know, we have a R&D arm in Haptic called Haptic Green, where we specifically look at these kind of projects that can help push a discussion further, you know, uh, widen the discussion around what a building typology might be. So it really came together as over a series of conversations between us and uh, Ramble, and then we found this um, opportunity and thought that would be a good site. But we have been speaking to, um, you know, people locally in Oslo as well. You know, I mentioned developers, but also uh, local population uses and uh, so on as well to sort of inform the project. There's, a, there's some big challenges facing us as a as a planet, isn't there? And I think, you know, as a collective, us at Rambal and, and Thomas and his team at Haptic, we're just really interested in, in how we could start to think about doing things a bit differently. And I personally love this idea of creating space rather than buildings. And I think we should start thinking about that as a as an industry, but also as a kind of society about how we can create space to solve the big challenge that we have around, you know, in particular in this country around, you know, affordable housing, you know, and, and how that might change over the over the long term. So it's just a it's a really interesting project that's got us all thinking. And I, uh, and I think a lot of people have been very keen to to join in the conversation as well. So that's that's been very successful, I suppose. So just finally, what do you think other developers could learn from what you've done in Oslo? Is there anything perhaps you would do differently when you're planning it if you were starting the scheme again or starting work on the scheme again based on what you've learned during the process? You know, I, I just think adaptability in buildings needs to be something that we take much more seriously. We we can't afford from, you know, carbon, environmental and cost terms to be knocking down buildings after 30 years anymore. I think that's, for society, I think that's unacceptable. So how can what we do last longer? And I think other developments, um, and we're seeing this actually in some of our buildings that we're working on now in London, are, are really kind of orientating themselves much more towards much longer term thinking and flexible use and, and, and real flexible use. I think that's the key thing here. I think it's one thing saying it's flexible, but really making sure that different typologies and situations could make use of space um, which does mean that often it is more slightly more expensive in the short term, but in the long term, it's the right thing to do. And I think that's why projects like this are, are very interesting um, in trying to lead that discussion. I think it's also, you know, I mean, history has shown us this. If you look at old warehouse buildings, you know, who started out as very functional industrial buildings and are, that are being converted to offices and residential use and are more popular than ever. And uh, they're still here 150 years um, later. You know, if you build in a certain generosity 
uh, it might have that slightly higher upfront cost, but uh, over the lifetime, it pays back many forms. So trying to move people away from the short-term profit-driven thinking towards taking a slightly more responsible uh, long-term perspective, I think is um, what they should be taking from it. And to be fair, you know, I'd say among our clients, it's uh, a lot of them are really quite aware of this. They think in the right kind of terms or are at least starting to do so. So I think the whole dynamic is changing and people are realizing that, you know, you just can't do things the way we used to do it. It's uh, the world has moved on. So how long do you think you'll be before we move away from people saying, well, why are you creating a future-proof building to why aren't you creating a future-proof building? Do you think it's a decade before will we get to that point or do you think it'll take longer? Well, I, I think from my side, I think, you know, if you look at um, the conversations we're having with local authorities now are, are moving that direction actually quite quickly. Certainly some of the London boroughs are, asking big questions about why buildings are coming down um, quite rightly actually quite rightly asking why are we taking buildings down and um, that conversation I think will pretty quickly move on to how can we make sure this never happens again I think in Oslo as well we're seeing you know there's requirements coming into the building regs about a certain amount of buildings having to be either uh, reused materials or able to be reused in the future. So, you know, I think uh, it is coming. I think it's going to be sooner rather than later because, you know, we're all super interested in it. We're having conversations like this and that will all help drive forward the pace of that. Thank you very much for joining us, I think that's just about all we've got time for today. I'm really looking forward to this kind of becoming a reality because my computer work often involves dodging in and out of scaffolding under buildings that are being knocked down and rebuilt. So I think it really be interesting when we do actually move forward to that future. So thank you very much for joining us and um, join us again soon for another episode of The Engineers Collective. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organizations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash the Engineers Collective.